Whig president finally elected, and a Democrat still ended up in the White House. 1841 was a frustrating year for many Whigs, but perhaps none more so than Henry Clay. Had he faded into obscurity after leaving the Senate in 1842, one can imagine that what might have been, had he gotten the presidential nomination rather than William Henry Harrison, would have weighed heavily on his mind. However, he did not fade away. Instead, quote, the despondent former senator received a tumultuous reception upon his arrival in Kentucky, just the sort of thing to reawaken his naturally ebullient spirits. Before long, his mind would turn to what might be in 1844, as Henry Clay prepared for yet another run for the White House. Hello and welcome to the Harrison Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Before we hit the campaign trail once more, I'd like to take a moment to give special thanks to the podcast audio editor, Andrew Foncook. The stump speeches of the age of Jackson would not sound nearly as vivid without his efforts. If you, like me, could use his assistance with your podcast or audio project, reach out to him via email at andrew at foncook. That's P-F-A-N-N-K-U-C-H-E dot com. 1844 was shaping up to be a return to the ballot for numerous also-rans. In the late spring of 1842, Clay received a visitor at Ashland, who was testing the political waters once more. None other than former President Martin Van Buren. Van Buren had traveled to the Hermitage to visit Andrew Jackson, and now called on the Whig leader. From all accounts, it seems that their conversation rarely got on the subject of politics, and that they enjoyed their visit together. However, this visit would come back in 1844 to be a point of attack against the two, but we'll get to that shortly. Invitations poured into Ashland for Clay to speak at one political rally after another across the nation. However, Clay was cautious at appearing too overeager and presumptuous. He did, though, choose a few select places, starting with Lexington, Kentucky, where he would deliver speeches to outline his platform and ensure that his name did not fade from the papers. This speech was described as, quote, vintage clay. But in that vintage, we can see hints of what would come to be a problem for Harry of the West. In the speech, he brought back up the corrupt bargain charge from the 1824 election, despite it being nearly two decades past. He started dredging up the old battles with Andrew Jackson. His long history, rather than being a strength, was increasingly acting more as a liability by taking attention away from any vision that he had for the future and making him look vintage. Still, his flair for the dramatic did come out as he ended the speech with the following rallying call. Quote, Wigs, arouse from your ignoble supineness which encompasses you. Awake from the lethargy in which you lie bound. Cast from you that unworthy apathy which seems to make you indifferent to the fate of your country. Arouse, awake, shake off the dewdrops that glitter on your garments, and once more march to battle and to victory. You have been disappointed, deceived, and betrayed, shamefully deceived and betrayed. But will you, therefore, prove fickle and faithless to your country? or obey the impulses of a just and patriotic indignation. As for Captain Tyler, he is a mere snap, a flash in the pan. Pick your Whig flints and try your rifles again. While the Whigs were getting energized and seemed to be rallying around one candidate as Clay made his select appearances, the Democrats seemed more disordered than ever. Martin Van Buren was considered by many to be the front runner to receive the nomination again, 
and indeed had started working towards that aim soon after leaving the White House in 1841. However, there was a sizable portion of the party leaders who were not enthused about the prospect, and a number of them had only held their nose and voted for Van Buren back in 1836 because Andrew Jackson had called for them to do so. These folks were eager for another candidate's support. And indeed, there were others who thought that they might just be able to outmaneuver the little magician. James Buchanan tried to rally support from the anti-Van Buren forces and found himself competing for support with Van Buren's former vice president, Richard Mentor Johnson. Louis Cass of Michigan, former territorial governor and U.S. minister to France, was discussed as a possibility. John C. Calhoun returned to the Democratic fold after his brief flirtation with the Whig Party, started considering his options, and indeed, it appeared as the 1840s went on that his base was starting to expand beyond South Carolina nullifiers, both across the South and even amidst some disaffected groups in the North. Certainly, Calhoun saw the opportunities that his growing support gave him in the contest as he felt the chances for a Democratic victory to be strong. As he wrote to his son-in-law in late December 1841, quote, I regard the Whigs as destroyed. They can never again rise under their present name, nor on their present measures. However, Calhoun had earned the enmity of Van Buren supporters long before by casting the tie-breaking vote against Van Buren's nomination as U.S. Minister to Britain back in 1832, as we discussed a couple of episodes back. They were determined to stop his ambitious run for the presidency in its tracks. Meanwhile, from the White House, President Tyler, realizing how unlikely it was that he could get the Whigs, otherwise known as the folks referring to him as his accidency, or the executive ass, to nominate him for even a seat on a town council, much less the presidency, started making overtures to Democrats to sound out the possibility of his receiving that party's nomination. He was, after all, the current occupant of the office. Didn't that offer all of the proof needed that he was capable of handling a full four-year term, since he would be just one month shy of one when the next president was inaugurated? However, unlike his other opponents for the nomination, Tyler wasn't willing to get down in the mud and fight it out. He had the dignity of the office to think about, after all. While that might have worked in earlier times in the nation's history, this was the Jackson era, and Van Buren's taking that tact when he was still president was part of the reason behind his loss in 1840. Then again, with such uncertainty in the party, anything really was possible midway through Tyler's term. Meanwhile, despite being virtually guaranteed the nomination, Clay started to hit some bumps in the road while making campaign trips across the nation as he was confronted on the trail by some of the leading issues of the day. In an appearance on October 1, 1842, Clay was confronted by an anti-slavery Quaker named Hiram Mendenhall, who called for Clay, quote, to free his slaves and thereby set an example for other slaveholders in the nation. Clay attempted at first to demur that, as a private citizen, he had no power to do anything to change the situation of slavery in the nation, and that Mendenhall instead should be approaching elected officials to change the law. Then, he went on to question the work of abolitionists and the idea of immediate emancipation, though he asserted that, quote, I look upon it, slavery, as a great evil. To him, there was an even greater evil in immediate emancipation. Just as a side note, I want to emphasize here that the next few sentences are Clay's words and thoughts. Quote, what would be the condition of the two races in those slave states upon the supposition of an immediate emancipation? 
Does any man suppose that they would become blended into one homogeneous mass? Does any man recommend amalgamation, that revolting admixture, alike offensive to God and man in the slave states? No human law could enforce a union between the two races. Instead, a contest would inevitably ensue between the two races. Civil war, carnage, pillage, conflagration, devastation, and the ultimate extermination or expulsion of the blacks. Nothing is more certain. Clay concluded his remarks with a call for gradual emancipation, for slave owners in the meantime to treat their slaves kindly, for reasons akin to an ideology that would later be dubbed the white man's burden, and for Mr. Mendenhall to, quote, go home and mind your own business. As noted by Clay biographer Robert Remini, quote, the implied and overt racist opinions by Clay in this speech and several others later on unfortunately reflected the beliefs of most white Americans in the 19th century. Repugnant as they are today, they represented the considered view not only of slave owners, but of many Northerners as well, including many abolitionists. Clay may have driven Mendenhall off, but the questions about slavery would not go away, especially as President Tyler began to bring the issue of Texas back to the forefront of the political conversation. For those not so familiar with the Texas War of Independence, we touched on the subject back in episode 32. Texas had obtained its independence from Mexico in the latter part of Andrew Jackson's second term, and there were many, both in Texas and the United States, who wanted to annex the territory into the U.S. as soon as possible. However, this would have caused at the very least a strain in relations with, and quite possibly, a war with Mexico. Also, as Texas was a slave state, it would threaten the delicate balance between slave and free states that had been maintained since the Missouri Compromise of 1820 at a time when pro- and anti-slavery rhetoric was already growing ever louder. Jackson had taken a pass on the issue, as had Van Buren, and Harrison had little time to consider the matter before, well, you know. But Tyler? Ah, now Tyler was someone that the pro-annexation folks could work with. A group of Democratic leaders from Virginia were some of the leaders in the annexation push, and they were well acquainted with the new president who hailed from their land. They started to make their appeal, and by October 1841, President Tyler was asking Secretary of State Webster about whether, quote, the North could be reconciled to annexation. Webster responded quite coolly to the idea, and Tyler soon realized that he would not find an ally in the man from Massachusetts to the idea of bringing Texas into the Union. The more Tyler and his associates pushed, the more volatile the situation became in the political sphere, and the more the issue came to dominate the national discourse. Even Andrew Jackson, from his retirement at the Hermitage, made it known that, quote, Texas must be ours. Our safety requires it. However, it was still unclear as to where some of the leading candidates in the presidential race fell on the issue. At first, Clay tried to brush it off, asserting in a letter at the end of May 1843, quote, that I do not believe that there is a serious purpose in any section of the U.S., nor a considerable number of American citizens who think of proposing to effect such an annexation of Texas. By December, He dismissed charges that he was avoiding the subject and instead asserted that it was, quote, not that I was unwilling to announce my opinion upon that subject, but that I did not think it right, unnecessarily, to present new questions to the public. 
Those which are already before it are sufficiently important and numerous without adding fresh ones. He was smart enough to realize that coming down one way or another on the issue would cause one faction of the Whig Party or the other to grow angry with him. He had been around the block long enough to know. Indeed, that other seasoned politician, Martin Van Buren, was keeping mum on the issue as well and waiting to see how the public mood went. But increasingly, his opponents for the Democratic nomination were forcing his hand. His own former vice president, Richard Mentor Johnson, came out publicly in support of Texas annexation, as did Lewis Cass. As time went on, Clay and Van Buren's silence grew deafening, and the incumbent president was doing little to make it easier on them. Secretary of State Webster, becoming increasingly uncomfortable with Tyler's outreach to elements of the Democratic Party, as well as his push to annex Texas, and with Webster realizing that a continued association with Tyler threatened his standing in the Whig Party, finally resigned on May 8, 1843, and Tyler was able to replace him with Abel P. Upshur, a fellow Virginian and longtime friend who favored Texas annexation and was more than willing to help the president towards that goal. As 1843 was about to give way to 1844, the news started circulating in Washington that it seemed as if Tyler and Upshur were near to signing a treaty to annex Texas. While waiting for the Texan envoy to arrive in Washington, D.C. to negotiate the final remaining points and sign the treaty, Tyler, his cabinet, and other prominent Washingtonians went on a cruise down the Potomac River aboard a new naval vessel, and one of the guns that was being fired as the demonstration exploded, killing Upshur along with a few others on board. Without his trusted friend leading the treaty through the Senate, Tyler began to fear that he would not see Texas brought into the Union. However, one idea did present itself. One of Tyler's rivals for the Democratic nomination, John C. Calhoun, was a strong proponent of Texas annexation, and, though he would likely take some of the credit away from Tyler, he also had the gravitas and knowledge of the Senate necessary to get the treaty ratified. Thus, Tyler offered Calhoun the post of Secretary of State, and the South Carolinian accepted. Calhoun's taking up the State Department meant that he would need to defer his presidential ambitions. As it was increasingly becoming apparent that Calhoun gaining the nomination was a long shot, he decided to bow out of the contest and instead try to win some prestige from finalizing the Texas negotiations, which he could then possibly use in another presidential run in the next election cycle. In the short term, though, Calhoun joining the cabinet meant that Texas was firmly back in play and that the two men, seen as the frontrunners in the presidential contest, Clay and Van Buren, were under increased pressure to publicly state their position on the issue. Clay, while out on a campaign swing through the South, would be the first to make his move. In a letter dated April 17, 1844, Clay sat down in Raleigh, North Carolina. Tradition has it that he sat under a large white oak tree on East North Street and wrote out his thoughts on the Texas issue, which he then sent to John J. Crittenden with instructions to publish. In his letter, Clay started out at length, sympathizing with the pro-annexation viewpoint that Texas had been, quote, sacrificed to the acquisition of Florida by then-Secretary of State Adams in the Adams-Ones Treaty during the Monroe administration. As Clay had, at the time, argued that Texas had, in fact, been part of the Louisiana Purchase, this was not a complete deviation from form. However, that was as far as Clay went in sympathizing with the pro-annexation viewpoint. 
After acknowledging that Texas had been given away, he went on to explain that, despite the Texas Revolution, quote, Mexico has not abandoned but perseveres in the assertion of her rights to Texas by actual force of arms, which, if suspended, are intended to be renewed, and that, should the United States bring Texas into the Union, quote, annexation and war with Mexico are identical. Oh, how far we have come from 1812, dear listener. Henry Clay, the one-time Warhawk, was now arguing in 1844 that, quote, I regard all wars as great calamities, to be avoided, if possible, an honorable peace as the wisest and truest policy of this country. The hot blood of his youth had now mellowed him into a statesman in pursuit of peace. However, there were other reasons to argue against annexation. First, he acknowledged the sectional conflict that would ensue by Texas joining the Union, especially since part of the argument for annexation, indeed with John C. Calhoun being one of the strongest proponents of this, being for, quote, obtaining it, Texas, for the purpose of strengthening one part against another part of the common confederacy, i.e. the United States, not to be confused with that other confederacy of the 1860s. No, Clay countered that, quote, such a principle put into practical operation would menace the existence if it did not certainly sow the seeds of a disillusion of the Union. Clay's aim in opposition to Texas annexation was not just peace abroad, but domestic peace as well. If you needed one more reason to oppose Texas annexation, Clay provided it. Debt. The national government of Texas had incurred a debt of $13 million, which the United States would then have to assume if they brought Texas into the Union. No, this situation was too perilous. Clay was firmly no to annexation. Now, one thing to note here is that Clay's letter was not published on the 17th. Indeed, Though he sent it to Crittenden that day, he also asked Crittenden to share it with other prominent Whigs and sent follow-up letters the next few days advising that it come out closer to the end of the month and sharing with Crittenden that, quote, Mr. Van Buren, if he does not alter his position, stands opposed to annexation. We shall therefore occupy common ground. Now, the question becomes, how did Clay know where Van Buren stood on the annexation issue? Remember me mentioning at the beginning of the episode that meeting in the spring of 1842? While Clay biographer Robert Remini concluded that he didn't feel that there was any collusion between the two frontrunners to come out in opposition to Texas annexation in order to provide cover for one another on the issue, it certainly didn't keep those in the know from wondering, especially as Clay's letter was published on April 27th, which turned out to be the same day that a letter from Martin Van Buren to Representative William H. Hammett of Mississippi was published, in which he, surprise, surprise, came out against annexation. Van Buren's letter was a bit more nuanced and allowed open the possibility, should the next Congress declare its support for annexation, he would, if elected president, sign an annexation bill. However, he did come out in opposition to ratification of the Tyler Calhoun Annexation Treaty and asserted that, quote, we have a character among the nations of the earth to maintain, and it has hitherto been our pride and our boast that, whilst the lust of power with fraud and violence in the train has led other and differently constituted governments to aggression and conquest, 
Our movements in these respects have always been regulated by reason and justice. In Van Buren's estimation, the annexation of Texas was a blatant power grab, pure and simple. It was morally wrong. With that letter, Van Buren broke with Jackson and Southern Democrats and put the final nail in the coffin of his 1844 campaign. His previously strong support in Virginia vanished overnight, and the already contentious Democratic nomination contest became a tumultuous free-for-all. First, though, the seeming inevitable had to happen on the Whig side of the campaign. The Frankfurt Commonwealth, in its May 7th issue, asserted that, quote, Clay's progress was one grand, unbroken, triumphal civil procession, never equaled in this country. Mr. Clay, undoubtedly, is infinitely the most popular man in America, and he certainly is the greatest of American orators and statesmen. In the lead-up to the Whig National Convention, Clay had traveled much further than Harrison had in 1840 in order to campaign, though, as was the style of the time, not claiming it to be for campaigning purposes. It took little imagination as Clay arrived in Washington, D.C. on April 26 to see that here was a man aiming to return on a more long-term basis to the nation's capital. The question, of course, is whether this campaigning would pay off in the long run. The Whig nomination process took place in Baltimore in early May, and Clay won the presidential nomination unanimously. There was even talk about inviting Clay to come to Baltimore to attend the convention, but a proxy read a letter from Clay declining the honor. Many more decades would have to pass before presidential candidates would start to attend the national conventions of the major parties in person. The vice presidential nomination was settled in three ballots, with former U.S. Senator from New Jersey, Theodore Freelingheisen, getting the nod over Clay's former running mate, John Sargent, as well as someone that would come to be known in presidential history circles, Millard Fillmore of New York. Overall, the convention went off smoothly, and the Whigs seemed to be coming out of it unified and ready to ride a wave to victory in the upcoming elections. As soon as the Whig convention was done, everyone turned their attention to the Democratic side. The already dysfunctional Democratic Party had its problems compounded by a pro-Tyler convention that was meeting simultaneously in Baltimore at the same time in late May as the Democrats. Only a few blocks away from the Democratic National Convention, another convention wholeheartedly nominated Tyler for president. Van Buren supporters buckled down for what they knew would be an uphill battle. The problem for them was that, though Van Buren had a majority of the support of convention delegates, he did not reach the two-thirds majority that had been the previous standard. Thus, they had to change the rules that were adopted by the convention, or it would be ever more difficult for Van Buren to get the Democratic nomination. This ended up an early showdown at the convention when it met, with the Van Buren forces losing the battle. Two-thirds are nothing. For Van Buren, that meant that he would end up with nothing. For the grandfather of the party, Andrew Jackson, had already publicly discredited him. After reading the Hammett letter of April 27th, Jackson had written to Van Buren that, quote, it would be impossible to elect him, as one would do better to, quote, attempt to turn the current of the Mississippi River as to turn the democracy from the annexation of Texas and had a letter published just prior to the Democratic National Convention in which he had point by point countered all of Van Buren's arguments against annexation. Van Buren had risen by Andrew Jackson's graces and now would fall when that grace was revoked. Meanwhile, 
Jackson had decided on another to carry his banner. Around the same time that he was writing his public letter to counter Van Buren, he had James K. Polk summoned to the Hermitage. Polk, like Jackson, was originally born in the Carolinas and had moved to Tennessee where he had ascended the ranks of state politics to eventually get elected to the U.S. House where he served as Speaker of the House, helping to support both the Jackson and Van Buren administrations in pushing legislation through before returning to his home state to serve as governor. He had been out of the governor's mansion for a few years when at the last minute his name was thrown into the mix of the Democratic nomination process. With the two-thirds rule passed, the convention became deadlocked, with ballot after ballot being cast and no one emerging with enough votes to secure the nomination. Every ballot that was cast proved ever more ominous for Van Buren as support was starting to drift to other candidates. Finally, after the seventh ballot, Polk's name started to be floated about, and the Van Buren block of votes, realizing the quixotic nature of their crusade, decided to throw in their lot with the man who would be dubbed Young Hickory. And thus, on the ninth ballot, the vote finally rallied around Polk, with the motion going forth and being approved to declare the nomination unanimous. A tired but cautiously optimistic Democratic Party left its convention with James K. Polk as its presidential nominee and George M. Dallas of Pennsylvania as his running mate. Now, dear listener, I'm sure you're left asking why we don't talk about Henry Clay as our nation's 11th president. Surely the candidate from the party that appears more united always wins the presidential election, right? Our contemporary listeners who lived through the 2016 presidential election will appreciate the irony of this question. And in 1844, as in 2016, appearances can be deceiving. The first challenge for the Democrats was to get Tyler out of the race. His third-party candidacy would only prove to weaken the Democratic voting base and potentially be the deciding factor in some swing states. To accomplish this, Andrew Jackson himself wrote an indirect letter to Tyler. In order to avoid any hint of a corrupt bargain, he wrote it to an associate of Tyler's and gave him permission to show it to the president in which he asserted that Tyler had earned support within the Democratic Party for his stances opposing a recharter of the Bank of the United States and for the annexation of Texas, and that, should Tyler wish for future high office, he had to withdraw from the presidential campaign. Jackson assured the president that he and his supporters would be welcomed back into the Democratic fold, quote, as brethren, all former differences forgotten. Looking soberly at the political landscape, Tyler realized that this was likely the best deal that he would get, and took it. Tyler's supporters would be subsequently shut out of key positions in the Democratic Party, and Tyler himself would not hold high political office in the United States again after leaving the presidency in 1845, and they called what Clay supposedly did a corrupt bargain. As the Democrats consolidated their base, the attacks ramped up on Clay, a handbill was printed proclaiming Clay to be, quote, that notorious Sabbath breaker, profane swearer, gambler, common drunkard, perjurer, duelist, thief, robber, adulterer, man-stealer, slaveholder, and murderer. Yet, knock-down, drag-out politics is not the exclusive domain of the 2016 election. Though some of these charges were true, while others were unprovable at best and completely erroneous at worst, Pretty much all of these would become the story of the remainder of the 1844 campaign. Clay was attacked by abolitionists for being a slaveholder, which was true. 
the corrupt bargain charge was dredged up again, which is debatable. He was attacked for having participated in duels in the past, which is true. He was attacked for being a gambler and for betting on horse races on the Sabbath, which was true. New issues came up, including questions about his opinion on naturalization laws at a time where agitation was ramping up about the rising number of immigrants coming into the U.S. However, what is seen by some to be the key issue that kept coming back was Texas. Stephen F. Miller, editor of the Tuscaloosa Monitor, sent Clay a letter that he had printed in his newspaper on June 19th about Clay's Raleigh letter and asserting that there were Southern Whigs who found Clay's professed firm opposition to Texas annexation objectionable as they felt it did not allow for the possibility of a future annexation of Texas. Clay responded to this letter in what would come to be known as his first Alabama letter, assuring Miller that, quote, personally, I could have no objection to the annexation of Texas, but I certainly would be unwilling to see the existing union dissolved or seriously jeoparded for the sake of acquiring Texas. This letter, when made public, sent off shockwaves. It was seen as Clay backing away from his previous position and made folks in the North, as well as the South, question where the Whig candidate for president stood on what was seen as being a leading issue of the time. Clay tried in a letter to Thomas M. Peters and John M. Jackson of Alabama on July 27th, otherwise known as the second Alabama letter, to clarify his viewpoints. But as students of more recent political history know, an attempt to clarify previous remarks often does not go as intended. Thus, Clay fell into two traps. One, he explained too much, recounting a much more extensive history of U.S. foreign relations with regards to Texas than was probably needed. Second, he doubled down on the middle-of-the-road approach. And I quote, I thought then, and still believe, that national dishonor, foreign war, and distraction and division at home were two great sacrifices to make for the acquisition of Texas. But gentlemen, you are desirous of knowing by what policy I would be guided in the event of my election as Chief Magistrate of the United States in reference to the question of the annexation of Texas. I do not think it right to announce in advance what will be the course of a future administration in respect to a question with a foreign power. I have, however, no hesitation in saying that, far from having any personal objection to the annexation of Texas, I should be glad to see it, without dishonor, without war, with the common consent of the Union, and upon just and fair terms. Yeah. This was yet again Henry Clay, the victim of the presidential bug, ignoring what his otherwise well-honed instincts would have told him. Don't vacillate as it makes you look disingenuous. The youthful quote-unquote newcomer, James K. Polk, talking about national expansion, while the aging politico Henry Clay was parsing semantics and not taking a firm stance. You don't have to be a political expert to know how this one turned out. Polk won with over 1.3 million popular votes to Clay's just under 1.3 million, and with 170 electoral votes to Clay's 105. While certainly much closer than Clay had gotten previously, it just wasn't enough. To be fair, part of the loss is attributable to fraud. As noted by Remini, 
There were active and ultimately successful efforts in numerous parts of the nation by Democratic factions to bring in voters who should not have been on the voter rolls to turn certain swing states. However, the fact of the matter was that the election was much closer than it should have been, and Clay took the loss to heart. He wrote to his friend Mary S. Baird that, quote, I will not disguise, my dear friend, that I felt the severity of that blow. Much as this sad event affects me personally, I feel much more for my country and my friends. I am but a poor mortal whose life has nearly reached the ordinary limit of human existence. Mortality was creeping in on this ambitious man as he started to realize that the reaper may claim him before he was able to claim his prize of getting to the White House. With that, we shall leave Mr. Clay here and return next time for what I believe will be our final installment in the life of Henry Clay, which I'm calling The Compromiser's Last Bow. Until then, should you have any questions, comments, or just want to say hi, feel free to reach out via email at harrisonpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com, or on Facebook or Twitter, where my handle is harrisonpodcast, again, all one word. The podcast is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn, If you're not listening from one of those already and subscription options along with past episodes and source information for this episode can be found at whhpodcast.blueberry that's b-l-u-b-r-r-y blueberry without the ease.com i cannot thank you enough for listening take care dear friends until next time